Good morning, guys. Thanks for joining me for Coding and Coffee. So uh, we had a lot of people interested in talking about Coding and Coffee. Um, I have my coffee here. This is one of my favorite mugs. Just uh, And I kind of churched it up a little with some whipped cream and some cinnamon there so we could be all cozy while we have a little chat this morning. So those of you that don't know me, I'm Christine Hall, and I'm thrilled that you've taken this time to be with me this morning. And um, just a little bit about myself. I have had the pleasure of working in this industry for over 30 years, and I've seen it evolve. I've seen all the changes that have been happening. And I got to tell you, truthfully, that um, 2021 has got to be one of the best years for coding. We finally got a lot of much needed definition, especially in the area of evaluation and management. So I'm very, very excited to be talking about this with you today. Um, in my little brief bio, let me share with you that I had the, the, the pleasure of joining a hospital billing office back in 1988. And my job in 1988 was to take all of the payments that came in from the payers and input them on a pegboard spreadsheet so that they could go to accounting. And uh, we don't do that anymore, but just to give you that type of an idea, we had an entire room that was probably a little bit larger than my living room that was where we housed our computer. And um, that's what it looked like back in 1988. And that's where I started. I moved on to do some work in a, in a medical records department. So I honed in on my CDI way, way early in the, the 90s. Um, and in 2000, I purchased a billing company where I just fell in love with everything that had to do with coding uh, that I hadn't done in the previous employment. But I also got to stick my hands into billing, which I got to tell you, there's very big difference between billing and coding. Um, coding is pretty straightforward. We have our codes, we have our guidelines. It's uh, very easy to manage. But when you get into billing and you have to deal with all the different payer requirements, it definitely can get a little hairy there. So when I heard that the AMA had given us some clear definition and some clear guidelines for the new evaluation and management, I was absolutely thrilled, got to tell you. So uh, let me bounce back. Uh, about 17 years of doing billing and coding, I decided, you know, I really need to get back into the compliance to vi viewing that documentation, viewing to see if medical necessity is met. And my true passion was always in education. So I wanted to get back into working hand in hand with providers and working hand in hand with their staff and, you know, how to make the best better. Um, and I'm borrowing that from my son's 4-H, right? How to make the best better. So here we are today. And um, I, I'm so excited to be able to have a little coffee and talk to you a little bit about the history of ENM. And every week we'll dive in a little bit more. We'll dive in a little bit more about what's going on in our particular industry or some hot topics. Uh, I'm very suggestive. 
If there's something you want to hear a, a little talk about, you let me know and we'll make it happen. We'll have a chat about it. So this morning I wanted to chat about the history of evaluation and management. So hopefully uh, a lot of you, we, we try not to remember our past too much. Um, I was looking this morning for those glamour shots from 1995 that I could share with you to show you how far we've come. But thankfully I couldn't find that box in the attic. Um, the one that I keep my Shania Twain and my TLC uh, cassette tapes in, you remember those, next to the Forrest Gump VHS, just to give you a little bit of, of um, reference to how long it's been since we've had any real change to evaluation and management. But we need to go a little bit further back than that because there, our evaluation and management codes didn't even pop up until 1992. So before then, um, we only had three different levels of service. There was an a brief, there was an a limited, and there was an extended. And it really was up to the provider's discretion which one of those they felt that, that the visit was most appropriate to bill. So in 1992, the ENM section from the CPT manual, it exploded from four pages to 44 pages. And we finally got our first little set of guidelines. Um, and those were where we really were quantifying the history component, the exam component, and medical decision-making component. But again, we didn't have any strict guidelines there. We didn't know if we were doing it right or not. It was still a kind of a guessing game. And our friends over at the Marshfield Clinic, they came up with a beta tool that kind of helped us quantify that. And then that beta tool was taken over by, not taken over, but it was, um, it definitely influenced the way that CMS and the AMA looked at uh, quantifying those evaluation and management visits. And in 1995, we had the birth of our first set of guidelines. Amazing. I, I'm a person of structure. I like it when I know what the expectations are for myself. And so the 95 guidelines were a breath of fresh air. Um, by then in 1995, I was managing a very small two physician practice here in Stewart, Florida. And um, it was very important that we had these things correctly because we were on the cuff of receiving Medicare Part C. Remember Medicare Part C and all the, the HMOs were just kind of erupting during that period. Um, the, the Medicare Part C was born in 1997. So we were right there on the cusp and getting some clear definition of how to make sure we were reporting the correct evaluation and management was so important. So that, that first set of guidelines that came out I was thrilled. Um, but I did notice that I was working for a specialty practice and the, the examinations were not always appropriate. Like it wasn't appropriate for us to be examining somebody's eye when we were a gynecologist office, right? That kind of made sense to me. Um, and when we finally got the 97 guidelines where it told us how we were supposed to do those specialty examinations, Again, I was completely thrilled. The providers, not so much, but we got used to it and time went on. Um, so if you take a look at the timeline for evaluation and management, 
it kind of stalled out after 1997. We did have a few proposals that went through. There was a great proposal in 2000 that went, uh, we, we were pretty convinced in the industry that we were gonna get an update in 2000. And I, I actually still have a copy of the, the old proposal for the guidelines in, in 2000, but it just didn't work. So we went on uh, quite a few years without having any clear definition and things were tweaked here and there. But in 19, I mean, excuse me, 2019, the final proposal, the, the proposal came out for the, the fee schedule. And lo and behold, there was this great conversation that change was in the making. So uh, the CMS made final in their final rule in 2019 that said, yes, we, we are revamping the guidelines. We're working hand in hand with AMA. We're gonna give you some new clear guidelines to, to follow. Um, and I was absolutely thrilled and very excited. And every little bit that came in, I was absorbing that information and thinking, how do I share this with my clients? How do I share this with my colleagues? Because this was some great information that was coming through. So last year, amongst the total chaos that was happening and things that were changing so quickly, I was a little hesitant. I thought, mm, I've seen this before with like ICD-10 where CMS says, yeah, we're gonna give it another year rest before we implement something, but they didn't. As a matter of fact, they gave us the preliminary guidelines so that we could start chewing on them and understanding. And the first thing that I saw were the definitions. Can you imagine that we finally have some clear definitions? Now, as coders, we struggle because without those clear definitions, um, we have to just, we, we're having these conversations with providers that we don't necessarily have the, the backup for. So when we say, well, that problem wasn't addressed. Well, what do you mean it wasn't addressed? And I've, I've had this conversation with providers time and time again of, uh, I need more information of how you managed this problem at today's visit and not that you're just adding it as a chronic condition that the patient has in order to count that. We finally got that definition in the 2021 guidelines and those preliminary guidelines that came out. So, so, so super excited to see those guidelines. Um, now, if we take a step back into 1995 again, we have to remember that we, most of us were not working on an electronic medical record. Most of us were just um, embracing the practice management systems that were coming out and that were assisting us. Um, we had a lot of assistance with our payers. I remember there were a few payers out there that were just wonderful with implementing the first software out there that we could get authorizations electronically. And um, we were just getting comfortable with computers in the office and functioning back in 1995. Um, in 1997, we got a little bit better because the Balance the Budget Act came out and a lot of suggestions had come from that. Um, but it wasn't until 2014, so just the other day, I say that all the time, guys, I don't know if you do too, but sometimes the past just feels like it was yesterday, like I don't feel my age right now, I digress. But um, it, it wasn't until 2014 that we finally had uh, EMRs mandatory. And it took 19 years to get to that point, right? 
But with the implementation of electronic medical records, I think that CM, this is just my thoughts again, that CMS and the AMA, they were able to start feeling comfortable with giving us new guidelines that were because our, oh, wait, let me go back. Um, because in 1995, we were still on paper charts, guys, right? And everything was being written when we implemented into electronic medical records. And we did have that av availability to, to capture a deeper history. And we had the availability to capture um, an, a detailed or, or comprehensive examination on patients. I think that because that now exists in almost all of our templates, um, that's why it's easier for us now to move into a new world where we don't have to quantify the history component and we don't have to quantify the exam component because we have had years and years of experience and now we have the, the aid of electronic medical records to really do that appropriate history and appropriate exam. So that's why we've changed our instructions on that ENM code, that are ENM codes. Let me show you what that looks like. So here again, they have removed the, the level of history, they've removed the level of examination, and they have said that a medically appropriate history and examination is what's needed. So what that tells me, folks, is that we're not saying that we don't need a history and exam, because imagine those are the core things that support medical necessity of a visit. We need to know why the patient is here, what is the medical reason that we're going to be treating, and that's what supports that visit. Imagine if we had just a document that had a list of diagnosis on it. We would never know what what the, the patient came in for, what was the reason that they came in for, what were the signs and symptoms. Um, so we still need those history and exams, but now we are, we are going to give that back to the providers who know what they need. They know what information is relevant to coming up with the plan of care or the medical decision for this patient. So, um, a few things that were really great, uh, I, I think I shared with you before, we got all these great definitions. We got, what is a problem? Well, a, a problem is pretty much anything that uh, the patient presents. So again, that needs to be something that uh, is, is backed up in that history component. So it's a disease, a condition, an injury, an illness, a symptom, a sign, a finding, a complaint, or any other matter that is addressed at the visit. Amazing. Um, but that led to the next question. What's the definition of addressed, right? So addressed is when a problem is managed. It's evaluated. Uh, a treatment plan has been created for that problem. And it could be that we're deciding to do testing we are deciding medication, we are deciding alternative treatments, diet, exercise. The key word is that we are deciding how to treat this patient. And as I went further in my study of the new ENM guidelines, something appeared very um, similar to me to what I had been using for all of these 19 years or 20 years of uh, the evaluation and management guidelines. So I took a look at what I knew and I looked at the old table of risk. 
So if we look at the old table of risk, well, it does talk to us about the nature of the presenting problems. It talks to us about what diagnostic procedures were ordered, um, and it talked to us about what management options were selected. And then I took a look at the new AMA, medical decision-making, the number and the complexity of problems that are addressed, the element, or excuse me, the amount and the complexity of data that's reviewed, and then the risk of complications or morbidity. And things started to look very clear to me that we were really talking about medical decision-making as what are those components. Now, again, I got to give props to the AMA. We have some clear definitions now as to what are our minimal, what is uh, low, what is moderate, what is high. And we have some great examples. So what, what I was always sharing with everybody is we can have a minimal problem. And that's something that maybe we didn't need to go to the doctor for, but all of us that have been in the business of medicine, we've seen some crazy things walk through the door. So uh, living in South Florida, one thing that we see all the time are mosquito bites, believe it or not. In the office, you'll have a patient who presents with a nice big red bump on their hand and they say, oh my goodness, I, I, I'm here on vacation and I have a big red bump on my hand. And a provider will say, you know, that's a mosquito bite. So uh, it's totally okay. You don't seem that you're having any type of reaction to it. Um, I know it's, it's not a pretty thing to look at, but that's okay. Um, go home, don't scratch it. It'll be gone in a day or two. That's a minimal visit. Had that patient never come in to see the provider that day, that mosquito bite would have resolved itself. It's also minimal risk because we're not offering any type of treatment. We don't need any testing for it because it's a mosquito bite. It's going to go away. And again, there's no other signs and symptoms that are reported at this visit other than an ugly red bump that occasionally itches. Okay. However, that could change easily. So what if you have a patient that comes in and they have multiple mosquito bites and now they are itching profusely and scratching and the provider says, you know, I, I think you're gonna benefit for some calamine lotion. So I want you to go and take a Benadryl and some calamine lotion. Now, both of those are over the counter products, right? However, that patient could have an allergic reaction Perhaps they've never had calamine lotion before and, and they're going to get a, a rash or something. So you see that the level of risk has gone up just a little bit there. Again, there was no data, no testing that was ordered, but we have increased the risk by, by including a topical and maybe including a, a Benadryl. So we could have a little risk there. So that's kind of a low visit. Again, we expect the patient is going to resolve all of these things. They're going to go away. Um, we're not expecting that, that this mosquito bite that they got from being out at a, a wonderful concert, I hope. Um, we're, we're expecting that they're no longer gonna have those in a day or two, it's gonna go away. But what if the patient comes in and now they are red and a little inflamed all over and there's multiple mosquito bites and the provider says, okay, I believe that the best way to treat this is by ordering you some steroids. Now, we have a, a condition here that now has become systemic. All the skin is red. Um, they're maybe rashy, itchy. They might be a little swollen. Um, and so 
the the problem now becomes something that we have to make sure that we treat this patient so that it doesn't get any worse. Maybe they don't go into any type of, of other reaction that's a stronger reaction. So the condition there now has our attention. So the condition is now considered moderate because it, it must have some intervention in order to resolve. It's not gonna go away on its own, it's just gonna get worse. And we're ordering a, a steroid for the patient. So the steroid also now is a prescription drug. It needs to be managed and it could also have some allergic reaction to it. So we have increased the type of risk that we're putting the patient into to take care of her mosquito bite infestation. So that risk is getting worse. That is a moderate risk and that's a moderate problem. Um, at this point, the, the provider might want to do some blood work. Maybe they're going to order a, a CBC to see how the white blood cells are reacting with differential so we know uh, wh what stage of a reaction this patient's in. So we've increased the, the amount of data that needs to be reviewed for this patient. There might be a couple of other tests, allergy tests, that the, pa that the provider is going to order to see um, again, how bad this reaction is. So at this point, we, we're increasing that data as well, the things that are going to need to be reviewed. Um, the, the last thing I wanna share with you as a scenario is that high. So what if my patient with the mosquito bites now comes in and she's fully red, she's swollen, and she or he can't breathe because we're having a, a severe allergic reaction to mosquito venom and they come in the door. The provider maybe gives them a shot of something in the office, but that's not resolving within a reasonable amount of time. And, and in order to prevent any further type of um, long-term consequences, this provider is gonna send the patient off to the ER, maybe admit them for some IV um, steroids to, to control this allergic reaction. We're going to monitor them. I, I'm sure there will be some sort of a chest x-ray done if they can't breathe to see what's going on, make sure that that's it, maybe some other level of testing, but there'll definitely be some, be some blood work that was done. There's also a good chance that if she's having such a bad allergic reaction that she might bring her husband with her or her adult child with her to say, you know, mom got worse at this time or again, provide some independent history with that patient. And the, the risk at that point to the patient becomes that decision to send them to the emergency room because we cannot have them passing out right here in the doctor's office. So you can see that very easily we have a condition and we have described when that condition is considered minimal, when it's considered low, when it's considered moderate, and when it's considered um, high. So we've looked at it from all three of those different angles. And um, I would love to hear what questions you have about this. You know, we only have a little bit of time together, so I just wanted to get you engaged. We do plan to uh, have a full presentation on evaluation and management, the new rules. We're going to put that up on our website um, probably sometime tomorrow where you can go in and, and download that and watch it. It's probably also going to be available on our YouTube site. So make sure that you like our YouTube site so that uh, and subscribe to it so that you can start to see these new webinars that are going to be available to you. Um, what questions do we have? Let's see. 
We have a lot of good mornings. Good morning to you too. I'm so happy that you joined us today. So we have a lot of people that agree that we love the new definitions from the AMA. Let's see what else we have. Um, so somebody did ask, are the 2021 evaluation and management guidelines different from the guidelines that are in the ICD-10 book? So the these are different. These are CPT codes and they're in our CPT book. But if you look in our CPT book, there are those green sections right in front of uh, ICD, excuse me, the E&M visits. So those are our E&M guidelines. And the new rules are in green ink. So everything that is new for 2021 is in green ink, just as we've seen year after year. But now you're seeing that there's a lot more information in green. And those are referencing our 2021 new guidelines for office and other outpatient. So everything in black, those are the same guidelines that we've been using. So those are referencing the 95 and the 97 guidelines. And that's in your CPT book. Um, not that I would discourage you from reading the guidelines in your ICD-10 book. Anyone who has ever taken any of my classes knows I preach, read the guidelines, read the guidelines, and then read them one more time. So uh, yes, very, very important. Um, so uh, Julie says that she has a copy of the CPT text. So she's gonna be sure to check out those new guidelines. Um, don't forget that in March, March 9th, the AMA put out some technical corrections. And what that meant is that they got a lot of questions about certain areas and they decided to expand upon those questions and they gave us more definition. Can you believe that? I just can't thank them enough. Uh, let's see. I uh, have a message here from Kate. Kate says, regarding independent historian, my provider dictates that the caretaker provided 50% of the history, but the patient provided the rest. Do you think this is appropriate to meet medical decision-making category? I do, Kate. I think, um, I, I think that you should ask your provider to maybe dictate what information came from that independent historian, not just that 50% of it came. So what did they say? Uh, here in South Florida, you would be very surprised to see that a lot of caretakers would say, no, he's not been taking his medication and no, he hasn't been exercising. And, and that might be a, a deciding factor for any provider who is treating a patient right? If, if the patient says, yeah, I take my meds and the caretaker says, no, he doesn't, then that would make a difference in how that patient is treated. So I would say, Kate, yes, I would give credit for that. However, I would ask that your provider give a little more detail as to what that caretaker told him. So let's see. So uh, Rupa says, so we don't need the 1995 and the 1997 guidelines for the 99202 through 99215 anymore. No, we do not. We should be using the new 2021 guidelines. And Rupa, you can Google 2021 uh, AMA 
E&M guidelines, and it should take you directly to that web page. And I think it is one of the best reads that I have read in a long time. So um, anybody that's in the industry, you're going to hopefully you're going to enjoy this read uh, because we got so much definition from it. Let's see, do we have any more questions out there that are coming in? Um, and we're going to do this again. So we'll have coding and coffee every Thursday where we'll have a little chat. We'll talk about a particular topic. And then I'm going to turn it over to you for the last few minutes of our time together so that you can ask any questions that might be uh, a burning question. Oh, Kate, you have another great question. Is fracture care a minor surgery? So, Kate, they did give us in the um, update what is a minor or a major surgery. And the guideline tells us that that's going to be the determination of the provider. So uh, I think some of us coders thought that it was going to be based on the global period, but it's not. It's dependent on what the provider says it is. So if they say or if they're implying that that fracture is a minor surgery, um, then, then we would consider it that way. Also, don't forget to look out for those modifying factors, those risk factors that could be documented. And they can't be the normal risk factors that we would see in our release of treatment when we're, we're going to treat somebody. You know, you could die. You could, this could go wrong. It can't be those types of risk factors. It really needs to be patient specific. So maybe someone who is getting uh, fracture care, but is also on anticoagulants. So that would make that minor surgery risk factors. So Great question. But if you take a look at the guidelines, Kate, you're going to see that um, they do address the minor and the major surgeries. So guys, that is our time today. Uh, there are a few more questions that are coming in. Uh, we will continue to review these questions and we'll answer them on our LinkedIn page. Uh, you can see those there. And then join me next week for Coding and Coffee. Our topic next week is going to be modifiers, but don't forget, I'm very subjective, guys. So if you start to tell me what you want to hear and what we should talk about, uh, we'll make that happen for you. Okay? So go and have a wonderful day, everyone. I wish you the best in everything. I'm here if you need me. Reach out. Uh, I'm available on all the social media sites. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube page. And we'll see you next week for Coding and Coffee.